Welcome to Food Love, the space between terroir and the Tao of food. This is episode eight, and I'm here with Trevor and Lauren Cook. They are a couple in Wisconsin, and Trevor and I, we met each other a long time ago. Well, not, not that long ago, uh, but I was the chef instructor for your advanced garbage A class. Is that right? I believe so. Yeah. And maybe another class. Oh, product ID. I think I taught you product ID because I have this distinct memory of us having to go to the UW Aquaponics Center where you were my Fantastic Four team in which we had to kill the tilapia in order to kind of complete the cycle of research on uh, aquaponically raised tilapia as a sustainable food store. Do you remember that? I do remember that. Emily picked strawberries the whole time and Pat and I handled the fish. (laughs) Right. That's right. It was a bit traumatic for all of us, I think. Um, So Trevor's here with Lauren, his beautiful wife, um, who's exceptionally talented. And I'm going to let each of them sort of talk about what they've been up to. They are, uh, they are starting a food blog and they have this beautiful family in Wisconsin um, and Trevor has been a talented culinarian uh, from very young. So I don't know who wants to start first, but um, I'm just going to put it out. Maybe Trevor, do you want to start first about what you've been doing? And some of the things we're going to talk about today have me thinking about as someone we, we know in common from a long time ago. His name is Chef Todd. And Chef Todd went through some very difficult things in the culinary world and in life. We both loved him, I think, in some some way. He was, as you know, a giant in the kitchen, um, just by his physical nature, and he was big and burly, and a source of great strength. So this episode is dedicated to Chef Todd and and Trevor. I don't know if you wanted to say something about who he was, how he figured in your education. So he was, uh, he was like he was new to the school when we were new to the school. So, I mean, we were his first, one of his first classes. So we ended up having him for our beverage, uh, alcohol and beverage class. And we ended up, we ended up going through the whole class with him. There was just him and the three, the four of us. And we, uh, after that whole year, he just, he trusted us. And because we had created such a bond with this small thing, like half of the days he was, in there prepping with us because there was only three of us or four of us that day. But yeah, no, he had formed this trust with us and we, for our final actually ended up just walking over to the liquor store and creating a a six pack of beer or two of them. And then we all just did a beer tasting for our final, wrote up some notes and talked about it and, and we passed, (laughs) but like he he trusted (laughs) us and he knew that we knew the, the material we needed. Yeah. And and you were the fantastic four from, <laughs> and people might not understand that, but when you have like a pretty stellar class, sometimes they get their own names, their own nicknames. Um, and so Trevor was part of that class. And I will say that I always found like a sense of leadership in you. And I think I, I saw your potential early and maybe at times when you didn't recognize it for yourself too. <laughs> so I was really glad when you called me out of the blue glad that you reached out and um you know my number hasn't changed and I always said to people keep my number because you can always reach out to me and I'm so glad that you did so so let's 
Let's talk a little about like what your new project is and where you've been in your culinary career and what it's meant to be an essential worker in this time frame of the pandemic and how that's impacted you. Both. All right. So I have spent the last 10 years really working through a lot of the fine dining establishments in this city. I've tried to do them all. Um, there's a few that I've missed. I, I guess I'm not excited to have that many different positions, but I think for me, it was, it was more about learning as much as I could, as fast as I could, because I had this passion for cooking and I loved it. But then come, come COVID, I ended up actually switching to a grocery store. Mm-hmm. And Let's working- give people a little background first, Trevor, because you worked at Stefano's from what I remember when you were in school. Is that right? Yes, that- I worked okay, at so that's- Stefano's. Yeah, that's um, pretty acclaimed for Italian food. has been written up in Savour. And then you worked in a few other, you know, pretty well-known restaurants, right? Do you want to talk about a couple of them? Yeah. So then, um, I, I worked in Stefano's world and he owns a lot of restaurants, but my favorite was working in that Italian one. I just had this love for Italian food because my very first job cooking, I was fortunate enough to work with an Italian woman named Rosa who taught me how to cook and speak a little Italian. So, um, that first summer is when I fell in love with food and I really, learned that like produce is so important back then in my mm. first job I was just making salads uh, garmo first job a lot of people's first mm. job and, and that's where I really learned to appreciate tomatoes specifically I mm-hmm. think it was it's so prevalent in Italian cooking um, mm-hmm. fresh cooked whatever way you want to use them sun-dried <laughs> but tomatoes are very important and I really learned that I saw the beauty in, in, in the produce really. Um, so from there I moved on and we ended up moving to Colorado for a year. We, and and you, Lauren, you met Trevor when, uh, well, we actually met in high school. We were high school sweethearts. Technically I wasn't allowed to date, but we were like a thing for a couple years in high school and then went our separate ways to college and kind of, weirdly reconnected a few years later after we had both dropped out of college when he was working at that job. And we actually got together within, I think it was only about a month, if even before he started culinary school. Okay. I didn't realize it'd been that long. Yeah. So we've been together for eight years now, which is when you started culinary school too. Yeah. Yeah. Okay. Okay. So let me not stop you, Trevor. Then, then you moved to Colorado is where we are. And I went straight to an Italian place there. We actually packed up okay. the tiny little Toyota Corolla and, and just moved without a job or a place to live. Wow. I didn't know that. We also knew we were pregnant too. Oh, wow. wow. We were we, young. We and... had, I, I believe we put in our two weeks and, and found out we were pregnant within 24 hours. Mm. And we're like, we've already made this decision. We can have a baby in another state. <laughs> Mm-hmm. So okay. we packed up and left. And from there, I went straight to Italian, worked in a, a uh, it was a little mom pop shop. Uh, I think it was called Rose's Bella Cucina. And it, it was a standard uh, American Italian fair there. Um, and then from there, one of my coworkers had 
got a different job, left. I mean, turnover in kitchens is high, but he had found a decent, stable place and he knew I was about to have a kid. Uh, like he knew my wife was pregnant. So he's like, hey, do you want to come, come work at this golf club? Um, mm-hmm. I'll vouch for you. I've seen you work. You're great. Like, I mean, come on over here and, and we'll see what you can do. Um, so I went over to this high-end golf club that was, I don't remember what it was called. I don't remember what it was actually called. But like the, the, it was just like such a different world to me because even to go and apply for the interview, I had to be let into a gate and I had to drive in a couple miles. And they're like, the clubhouse is the third house on the right. And it's actually the smallest building you're going to see on the drive. And the other one were just like a couple mansions that lived on the golf course or whatever. So I'm mm. like, what, what am I getting myself into? So I went and took this job. So that was a different world. And I, that one was where I really learned diet culture and to cook for diets because mm. people in Colorado are very more health conscious than the eaters here in Wisconsin. So I, there was a lot more specific diet requests and a lot. Well, it was a member-owned club too, so a very specific set of of clientele there. If I can interject, I will say, since you're speaking about it right now, I feel like of all of the different restaurants that you've worked at, I feel like that was probably one of the healthiest work environments that you had was at that job. Hmm. What do you think that was from? Was it the management style or? Maybe I'm wrong because I obviously didn't work there myself. I think, honestly, looking back at that, I haven't thought of this. Sorry, I threw a curveball. It's perfect. That golf club was very similar to Kohler and the American Club of having a very good culture of of culinarians in it, which is actually a culture shock when you leave. And we'll get Mm -hmm. to that when we get through Kohler. But like that job had a high set of high-skilled people in that. Mm. And the chef had warned me like, Hey, this is a a high learning curve in this kitchen. You're going to struggle to keep up probably. And then, and then I proved myself and and whatever. And I think you did well with the challenge of it. I think I did because he told me I couldn't do it. And I said, no way I will. Mm. (laughs) So like that was maybe it. I don't know. And like, honestly, I respected the, the chef there, Bob, chef Bob, (laughs) he was a, he was an ex boxer but just like an old school dude. He reminded me like of a military chef, but like also just the nicest person. And he, he, I think he, it, he showed he cared. And I think it was also because like he was having kids at the same time. So, I mean, there was some, there was some very similar, there were better values there, I think, than a lot of the other places I've been. Okay. And does that mean because he was having kids, he had a sense of what you were going through? like at home, not just at work and cared about like your, you know, existence. Yeah. Just I think getting the food made. It was, it was just, it's different to see. I don't know. He was, he was older and had his life together, at least seemingly. I don't know. Like, no, he was just like a kind old soul. Mm. Like, yeah, he was firm and had his boundaries, but like, I don't know. There was something about him that like, I, I, he just had this trust to him that you could trust him. And, and I, it was just something you can't really describe physically or, or different. 
I just, okay. that was him. Okay. So, so you worked there for a while and then what happened and how, how are you faring? Because one of the things you shared with me was that somewhere along the line, things must've gotten stressful in a way that was difficult. Was that at that point or later? I feel like these, at this point in our life, I think I was struggling with alcoholism, but not in a way, not in the stereotypical way of like, this is what an alcoholic is because I was very high functioning. I had a job. We just had kids. And, and then I was more of just like a binge drinker, I, I would say. Mm, okay. So, and, okay. and I think occasional it, binge drinker. Yeah. Like it wasn't a daily thing. And I think it flew under the radar for a long time because after we had kids, you weren't like going out and drinking or partying after work. I was it was just, like an infrequent thing. Yeah. Yeah. So, so on some level you might've thought, oh, this is just about use, right? Like I have the time and ability to party and, and you don't make anything of it because it just, maybe it's just going to fade away. Yeah. But it did, but it didn't. No, it didn't. Like I always was like, oh yeah, I'm just having fun. This is my rebellious time. Mm -hmm. But yeah, it just didn't stop. And you kind of just keep telling yourself whatever whatever it takes to keep that denial because you really don't want to come to terms with that in the moment i mean it's it's hard to really come to terms with especially i had zero knowledge of any mental health anything i didn't even know i was struggling with depression mm-hmm. until it was like 6 years had passed and then i realized wow. hey i think i've had depression for a long time and i don't even mm-hmm. know how to deal with that <laughs> right Right. And, and I, I, I've heard people say that, you know, alcohol is one of the ways in which people sort of self-medicate their own depression. I I don't have any medical background or anything, but I've heard people say that. I think a lot of the, the extra pressure pressures came when I became a manager, Mm. which was when it was after we moved back home, but we'll go back Mm -hmm. to the, uh, the culinary story, I guess. So we left Colorado and came back home to work for the American Club. I mm-hmm. ended up on a trip home to visit family, Did a brought my knives home with me and did a cooking interview or a, a, a demo for the chefs at The Immigrant. And, and uh, that that is a tryout in itself. Um, <laughs> it, it's, it, it's different. All restaurants do it differently. But um, cooking for The Immigrant was a little intense because, I mean, you had the head of Riverbend sitting at a table. You had the head of the immigrant sitting at the table. You had the director of food and beverage. You had like the four top people in food at Kohler, the American club sitting at a table, tearing apart your dishes. You just made them. Mm-hmm. And it's a black box, right? Like they say, Hey, make us this, or did they give you um, what you were going to be making in advance of the interview? Honestly, I've never had anyone try and pull a black box on me. Oh, really? Oh, okay. Everyone has always, always been like, you. what do you want to make? Like how much, like they've always been like, what do you want to make? Or, or like nice. sometimes they were like, I want three courses, a soup, a salad, and an entree or something. Mm, like that. Okay. But I've never really been given ingredients, which I would love, but like they've never been given <laughs> ingredients and been like, make something. Because that's when the real creativity happens. When you, yeah, you bring did. those constraints shorter and shorter, you force yourself to be creative because you don't have mm-hmm. more options. Right. 
Yeah. Okay. So you're at the immigrant room and this is where you... And this is where that shift changed. Yeah. We had just gotten pregnant during my time working at the immigrant because I remember putting in my two weeks and then also telling my coworkers, oh yeah, we're going to have a baby too. (laughs) (laughs) Wow. Seems remarkably similar. Like the transition happening right at that same time Um, of of child birthing. (laughs) And at that time I had this pull to make more money and just, I wanted more responsibility. I honestly, I think I was kind of bored after Mm. about a year. And this is also like, very common in my history about after about a year, I've usually like learned most of the menu items in a Mm. restaurant of all the stations, depending on how much they change or whatever. And at Mm. that point, it's like, I I, I think I get bored because I think I've hit my limit of like, I'm not going to learn anything new here unless I'm like doing the, like I, I, I don't Making know how to really explain that. Well, there was also the fact that you had been trying to get promoted to at least a sous chef position yes. or a head chef position at pretty much everywhere mm-hmm. you had worked. You were a sous chef mm-hmm. at Roses in Colorado. Yeah. Um, and then I didn't get it at the golf club you in You got Colorado. passed over often because of your age. And often you was told, you have the skill, you mm-hmm. have the experience, you're too young. Mm, that's hard. So he really just you went to the first place that would give you Honestly, a chef position. Yeah. As I was at the immigrant, I interviewed for a, a management position in the American club and they said, no, this isn't the position for you. And I decided to take that. And I said, fine, I will go get my management experience somewhere else. And mm-hmm. I picked up and went and got a management position actually at the Sheboygan Yacht Club. Mm-hmm. And that was like my first one. And that one came through a connection from school through um, Nathan. I don't know what he's doing now or what his position was back then. Uh, He would have been the restaurant manager at the Culinary Institute's um, Bistro 712. It was not Bistro 712 back then. It wasn't, okay. What did we call it? That was a bit, yeah, because you were there before I was associate dean. We didn't have it. It was just the Lakeshore Culinary Institute restaurant. Yeah, so part of the work I did was in, in branding it so that we could have relationships with the community. <laughs> Sometimes I forget that I was the second class of yes, that culinary right. school. Mm-hmm. Yeah. The, the beginning classes. Yeah. Yeah. So, okay. So, so you went to the yacht club. So that was early on then. And so Nate would have been teaching the dining room and beverage class at that point. And I don't know what title he would have had, um, but he is like the ultimate connector of mm-hmm. all things restaurant based in, in Sheboygan. In my mind, he knows everybody. Yeah. And he also golfs with everybody. There, <laughs> so <laughs> so he, he, he meets, you know, a lot of connections. So, so then you, you worked at, as a manager at the yacht club and, and that's where that's, what happened. Then you. That's where me and my mental my mental state started to spiral and and start to go down into some dark places. I just got real, real depressed. I think during those two years, my father was remarrying. Mm -hmm. We also kind of forget that my mother passed away the year we got married. So like, I think part of the, like, and I hosted my dad's new wedding too. Mm -hmm. 
mm-hmm. which I think was a mistake, honestly, yeah. because I like was trying to please people, but I was not in a, in a safe place for myself at that time. Mm-hmm. Wow. And we had my own family stuff going on. Yeah. That's a lot. We had, we had to end communication with certain close family members of mine right around the time that our daughter was born which was during that time that you were at the yacht club. We had a lot going on. (laughs) Yeah. Wow. Mm -hmm. That is a lot. And I was at the time also like. You tried to start going back to school. I was going back to school for engineering too at the time. Oh, wow. So I had some, I was like in my first management position about to have my second child and decided it'd be a good idea to start school too. Wow. Maybe a little. That's a lot. I'm ambitious. Many identity crisis (laughs) happened there. (laughs) <laughs> that's not an identity crisis. That's that's really an exploration happening in a comp- in a compressed time. Yes, true. That's all. Yeah, that's a better way to put it for sure. Um, Thank you. And but like, <laughs> those were some of the times when, like, some of those dark times. That's when I started hiding my alcoholism mm. because I was the manager and I had to keep this image of being responsible and in charge and in control. So. Mm-hmm. You can't have a drunken boss. <laughs> right. So that's when I really went full blown closet alcoholic to a point of like, I had a vodka bottle in my spare trunk spot in my car. I, oh, wow. I would spike my coffee. I would, I had oh. like, it, it was just my life revolved around it and hiding wow. it. And Lauren, like, had you any idea? Did you discover any of these things or how did, how did you become aware? Yeah, I knew that since he had started his job there, that he had started drinking more again, because for a couple of years after we first had our son, I mean, things were pretty quiet and like these things weren't really much of an issue, at least to my awareness, but it started to be more, I really was not aware to the extent until much later when he, you know, was honest with me later at which point he was like, yeah, this is what's been going on. And I really had been completely Mm -hmm. clueless as to the extent, but I did know that it was an issue. I knew that he was coming home intoxicated, you know, at least once a month, if not more. And it was enough that I was like, we have kids. We, I don't want you there's stuff going on that's probably, it's not just like you're having a couple of drinks at night and you know, it was, we knew it was unhealthy. It was also at inappropriate times too, yeah. because I would do it when like your family was visiting. Mm-hmm. Oh, wow. So, so it was almost like some of the things you were managing emotionally, you just started to manage with alcohol. It was it definitely like. my coping mechanism. And wow. I, I hadn't taken the time to look for anything for myself. I, mm-hmm. I, I think at that time I knew deep down I, I was an alcoholic, but I, I literally, I didn't even comprehend depression and trauma and any of that mm-hmm. at that time. I was mm-hmm. just kind of stuck in my own little hole. When was it? Wow. Yeah. I think it was another, probably at least a year or so before we really nailed down the whole depression, anxiety well, aspect of things. The Yacht Club happened, um, and then I got my, like, what I thought was my dream job, um, which was mm-hmm. chef at Cucina, the Kohler's okay. Italian restaurant. I'm like, okay, Kohler's one of the best resorts around here, and, like, their Italian place, I love Italian, like, that, I think, is my dream job. And I, I got it. I had 
left on good terms from the immigrant, went and spent a year of management somewhere else. And then I came back to Kohler and I was like, look, I've got a year of management under my belt. I want to be your, your Italian chef that you guys are looking for right now. And the, the guys who were running the immigrant at the time were like, yeah, this is a great idea because when they told me no, the last time they're like, you're too much of a rustic Italian chef. And, and then I came mm-hmm. back and they're like, yeah, actually we need that now. <laughs> okay. um, <laughs> so I got my dream job and that I thought was great. I was kind of happy and like the drinking kind of went away for a little bit. Mm-hmm. And then I think a year went by and like I got lost in the day to day. And I still ended up going back to that bottle. Mm-hmm. Now, different restaurants, I mean, like Kohler was a little easier for me not to be drinking at, like after, after work on the, um, like with a shift drink because Kohler doesn't do mm-hmm. shift drinks. Um, but a lot yeah. of mom and, pop- and for people who aren't in the culinary industry, the shift drink is when the shift is over, let's all have drinks. Right. Yeah. And a lot of times it is on the house, like each, like a lot of times each cook will get a beer or whatever drink. Mm -hmm. And yeah, I've even been to places where like, as you start cleaning up, you get one and then Mm -hmm. you can have a second one when you're done cleaning up. And I'm like, Mm -hmm. why are we encouraging this? Right. Well, and then, and then people usually go out after the shift is over to some kind of bar or something and drink again. That's an average night. Yeah. Yeah. And I, I remember very, very short period in my life where I was, with a group of friends who were all working in kitchens and, and that was the thing. And I, it took me a while to just like step back. Hey, is that, is that really the life I want? Like, can my liver keep up with that? And, you know, for me, like the, the, the thought process happened kind of faster and I wasn't in a place to continue that, but I can see like that feeling of closeness that you have with the people you work with that happens over those drinks where you're sort of uninhibited, it becomes its own addiction. I think on some level, right. That, well, maybe not, not for everybody, but I just, you know, I, I remember feeling that closeness in those moments with people. You're often Um, surviving a very high stress situation with these mm -hmm. people that creates almost Mm -hmm. like a trauma bond. Sometimes if you're getting through this crazy rush of 300 people in a night and well your body doesn't you made it through (laughs) like your body it it is a trauma bond like you are bonded together because you go through all this stress your body doesn't know that like you signed up for this but like your body still Mm -hmm. sees like you just went through like six hours of stress tonight to serve that line and Mm -hmm. now you're going to relax with these people that just went through this with you and have a drink and Mm -hmm. talk to them because now right. you can actually relax and be yourself. And it it's this like coworkers in a kitchen are like this family you either do, mm-hmm. do or don't choose, but it's, it's this mm-hmm. very strange codependent relationship of like, like s- certain, cer- like I've always known, like you brought it up, you either really love your coworkers in the kitchen or you can't stand them. Mm-hmm. There's almost never that like just middle. <laughs> maybe that's just us i don't know but i feel like I, we both had no, that experience I think it's though because of like just the kitchen environment it's a high stress environment and it's a high stress you kind of gotta get your group together in the kitchen you're either going or you're not because <laughs> mm-hmm. like there's yeah there's and if you're not going you're gonna get left behind right 
<clears throat> yeah. So, so you had this awareness, you came to Lauren and Lauren said, what to you after that year when you kind of finally put your finger on it and you said, okay, this is based in depression and this is anxiety based. And like, how did you as a couple face that together? I think the two of you have a lot of strength. Um, and maybe it, it came in part from the fact that you were raised in the same faith in the beginning and you evolved together in a different way than your family might've. Um, but do you want to talk about that a little bit? Sure. Lauren? Yeah. I want to say it was probably, well, it was when you were at Kuchina Mm -hmm. and we, we had kind of just had our own relationship stuff going on where, you know, there was probably some emotional disconnect, just a lot of, we both from the beginning were just kind of in survival mode. There wasn't really any time or opportunity for us to come up for air and be like, wait, what are we doing with ourselves? I had just dropped out of school. We got together. I was serving tables. We actually worked together in Stefano's restaurants, me as a server and him in the restaurant or in the kitchen. And then started having babies. I stayed home. And that was that, I think, after having kids, restaurant hours and children do not mix well. And especially (laughs) that is not a good mix if you're trying to have a social life, because like we just said, Mm -hmm. Your social life, if you're working in the restaurant industry, is you're going out to the bars with your coworkers afterwards, probably. Mm-hmm. People aren't doing a whole lot during the daytime. Mm-hmm. And we shared a car for the first few years. So I was very, very isolated at home with mm-hmm. our little ones because I didn't have a car. I couldn't, I honestly, I think one of the worst aspects from my perspective of the restaurant industry was just the completely inconsistent and irregular scheduling. The hours are just all over the place. There was never any notice on scheduling either. He usually didn't have his schedule. We were lucky if it was a week in advance. Mm. So I couldn't ever commit to plans with people. We couldn't, like, there was never any routine. We couldn't get any kind of consistent scheduling or sleep schedule or any of that. So it was just, we were totally dysregulated (laughs) in every possible way. I think that's an important point because I don't think people who are eating in restaurants realize the havoc that just the fundamental scheduling process creates for people with families. And, you know, I I like to think about this conversation that we're having in the context of what's, what's problematic about the industry, right? Like what's not working for people to have sustainable lifestyles with their families what's not sustainable for people's emotional, psychological well-being and health, right? Because of the level of pressure. And, you know, there are things about that, but then what are the support mechanisms? It's, it's kind of like some places are really good at providing support, but it's after the fact. It's after you've gone into the place of darkness, as opposed to giving people supports beforehand. So that they don't ever have of, to go there. Yeah, no. yeah. So I think that's, I think those are important things you're talking about. Yeah. So Trevor came to me eventually and just was like, what is my deal? (laughs) What's wrong with me? Um, So I just don't feel right. And Mm. we both kind of started Googling and researching. And because again, we had no prior, our family, we didn't have mental health awareness really at all. It Mm -hmm. was, I had, it, 
It honestly was some professional chef. I don't remember what it was. It was an article on Facebook I read that was a professional chef talking about mental health in the industry and how it's not talked about. Mm-hmm. And we need to. And he was talking about yeah. how he was talking to his sous chef, like, and and they were talking about their mental health problems. And that was the article. And it was something along the lines of like they had mentioned when things don't seem fun anymore, or when when you mm. when something like that. And I had come to you and it was like, what's wrong with me? Like I cannot It was when you like, lose your love for making food. Yeah, when you lose actually, your creativity and your ability to like be excited about coming up with new dishes and I didn't want to eat. Oh, I didn't want to cook. I didn't wow. want to eat. Wow. Yeah. That's a big deal. And so eventually, after all the Googling, because he's like, I can't be depressed. I'm fine. I'm I go to work. I get everything done. I'm the energizer bunny. Like I do it all. Mm. And so we mm. only had ever heard the most, you know common or stereotypical versions of what depression, anxiety, alcoholism, all these things look like. And Mm -hmm. we totally just flew under the radar because neither of us were manifesting these forms of these Mm -hmm. issues in the normal way that we had been told about. So, Mm -hmm. you know, he wasn't drinking every single day, so he must not be an alcoholic or He Mm -hmm. could get out of bed in the morning and function and do things. So he must Mm -hmm. not be that depressed. And then I stumbled upon Mm -hmm. high functioning depression and he ticked like all the boxes. Mm -hmm. And then I also realized that I was depressed and I was anxious. Mm -hmm. I had, I got to a point where I had severe anxiety to the point where I could barely leave the house. I didn't want to take the kids shopping or go anywhere by myself. I had really irrational fears and thoughts around going in public with my kids alone. It was really it was really bad. And we actually ended up both seeking out help from initially a psychiatrist at the same time. Wow. Wow. I mean, that's a really bold move for a couple to make and to, to take that action. Right. And so you must've been at a a pretty like deep place of crisis, like both together and as a family to kind of take that action, to take that step. Um, And did you talk about like your commitment to each other in that moment? Like, how did you kind of relate to each other in that moment? Like, how did you see each other in that vulnerable place? Honestly, it's hard to remember because I feel like I don't remember a lot of that time. What did I, I think-, think about you back then? <laughs> well, I think a lot of our depression fed off of each other too, mm. because we were, we had come from codependent families, not knowing and then made a new codependent family and then mm-hmm. really hadn't deconstructed any of anything really. So like, I, I'm not sure where all of that, I'm not sure where I was going with that. I mean, our relationship was not healthy at the time. There yeah. wasn't really any question okay. of it being at, at risk, but it wasn't healthy. Okay. Because you were still playing. committed to each other. Yes, Absolutely. Very committed. Okay, that never changed. That never really changed. Mm-hmm. I did you feel seen, Trevor? Did you feel seen? No. Like that she saw? No. Okay. I, I felt so there's that period where Yeah, I felt very alone and very isolated okay. too. Okay. I often felt like I was I I think a lot of our dynamic during those years was me being, I think, the more clingy type and wanting more attention, mm-hmm. wanting more affection, wanting 
more out of emotionally and him being more kind of the avoidant closed off Mm. type. And so he felt very alone and very unseen. And I was like, I'm here. I'm trying to see you. I'm trying to get you to let me in and, and do this with Mm. you. And for a long time, he just, I just just weren't able to stay busy, keep my mind working, I guess. And at the time we still had no idea. I mean, this year there's been a lot of unpacking all that stuff and where that comes from and past trauma and childhood things. And there's been so much more clarity, but still at that time, when we first started addressing our mental health issues, there was still a lot of information that we were missing. Yeah. Well, it's, it's amazing that you found it and then you got the help that you needed. Mm-hmm. So what, what did that process look like for you? So now you were getting help, both of you, and you kind of evolved, right? Um, no. Well, no, honestly, like at that first, no. that first year, nope, nothing. Nothing. I learned, okay. I learned That's from- super helpful <laughs> because, because people are out there thinking, well, if I just go see somebody, it's going to get better. Like it's not a silver well, bullet. Nope. Anything people need to know that, right? We went and got medicated. That's what we did. We didn't okay. get therapy. Okay. We didn't seek support from family or friends, we went and got on medication, which I'm personally okay. now of the opinion, not that medication is bad or wrong, but that is not going to fix everything at all. Sure. That needs yeah. supplementation. I, I learned the lesson. But it's enough to keep you buoyed, right? Like yes. it kept yes. you in a buoyed place so that you could do the work. It got me going. It got me, my, me being on medication helped me not be drowning in anxiety. I was able to mm-hmm. function. I actually... Mm-hmm eventually got a job and like that pulled me out of a rough spot personally. Mm -hmm. It served me well for the time that I was on it. Mm -hmm. So I had admitted I had a problem and then learned the hard way that pills don't teach skills Mm. because I didn't stop drinking and I didn't start working on myself. So Mm -hmm. I started taking these depression pills and Mm -hmm. I started working um, again and I, I told my sous chef about it because of the the whole like where this came from. So like I started talking to her about it and actually like she was like, yeah, man, we're all messed up. Like I've been Medicaid forever. <laughs> like and it was just very like I finally like built up the courage to just tell somebody mm-hmm. about it and be like, hey, so I saw a psychiatrist and I'm on medication now. And she's like, like not that she was being dismissive, but it was like, mm-hmm. yeah, welcome to the club. Uh-huh. And oh it was gosh, like, that had to be really hard to hear. It and it was like, okay, I get it. And then, but then it it opened up a door, and and that actually created a really great friendship for me because mm. okay. I still keep in touch with her. Wow. And I ended up that next following year, um, there was a situation that happened. I went to HR. It didn't work out the way I thought it was going to work out. And I had the thought and fully believed it that I could not help my staff anymore. Right. And I just want to say that you shared with me earlier that this is a situation where you are advocating on behalf of women who are being harassed, right? Yes. And, and trying to get them the due respect that they needed from someone who was overseeing them. Um, And particularly being disrespectful in times when you weren't around. Right. Yes. And it wasn't, and it wasn't even just the 
back of house, my staff, it was also the front of house, his staff. So, Mm. I mean, it was, this was a large concern that I, I took very seriously. I think the, yeah, I had to, I I had to stand up for them and I, I was, had to be brave and, and showed my leadership there. And then nothing happened and I gave Mm. up. Right. Because I really, I wasn't in a great mental place to, to begin with. Sure. Um, and I started drinking more oh, and more. Wow. And, and sometimes I would drink at work and that wow. was not okay. And right. I just ignored it. I knew it wasn't mm-hmm. okay, but I ignored it. And, and I coped and still was seeing the psychiatrist and... Mm-hmm. I don't know if this had to be doing with it. I mean, Lauren brings up the fact that like on that day you drank a lot anyway, but, um, I had a new medication, didn't read the bottle, didn't even think of it. And, um, one of the days at work, I ended up waking up that night and being fired. Like I didn't even know I was fired because I had gotten drunk at work, blacked out, been picked up by my wife and woke up sometime like came back to reality sometime later that evening Um, and I had woken up without my work phone without my work keys I had no recollection of being fired and that was my rock bottom that was finally the time to do something about it right and and in this time Lauren how are you both kind of managing with your kids? Because I know you said you said he was high functioning, and like, do do you feel like your children observed any of these things, or you think you were high functioning and kind of keeping them sheltered from all of it? I think, I mean, there was definitely an attempt to shelter them from whatever we could. They were young. And they were up. really little, which I think helps. I'm re- I'm grateful yeah. for the fact that they were still so young when this was going on. I think the only thing that they ever saw that they do remember as being like something wasn't right was that day mm-hmm. I had to go pick him up. He couldn't yeah. drive himself home and I had my kids. So right. we had to go get in the car and go drive and pick him up and he was in the car and very mm-hmm. incapacitated. And um, they were like, what's up with daddy? You know, it was. I'm going to bring up the fact that in addition to my depression, I very much struggled with suicidal tendencies and thoughts and ideologies. Okay. So like that was pretty wow. prevalent. And, and <sighs> so that was also part of it that she was trying to protect the kids from. That right. one day right. in particular was really hard because he was kind of ranting and raving. And I was like, Hey, I know this is really hard and you're going to be okay, but I need you to go upstairs and lay down and shut your mouth. Cause we can't have the kids hearing this stuff right now, you know? And thankfully one of our friends actually came over my sous chef and was there to help support me and him Cause he, he was insisting like, say, like, I need to go back to work. I need to get my keys. I need to, I forgot stuff at work. And he wasn't totally coherent to what was really going on yet. And we were both like, you have to stay. 
stay home. You're not going back mm. there right now. And it was mm. difficult for me to do that on my own. So I was really grateful to have mm. support that day. Right. Other than, I mean, our son has asked a couple of times, like, Hey, remember that one day? And we're like, mm-hmm, yeah, um, we've. So the, actually there's a story about that a year later after that day or like the next winter or whatever, I got out the same jacket and Jude like pulled it out for the winter or whatever. And Jude's like, Hey, that's the jacket you were wearing when we picked you up when you were sick. And then like, I think I lost it and just broke down in tears that day just because like I hadn't fully dealt with it much. Yeah. That's that. Yeah. Cause then, yeah, it was, um, I stopped drinking and then nothing happened for two years. I did it again. (laughs) Like after this whole story, I hit my rock bottom and I still didn't learn that lesson of, I still have to fight for myself and do something about it. We learned that alcoholism, Mm -hmm. your drinking was not the root cause of Mm -hmm. our, Mm -hmm. of your struggles. It was a symptom. It was a coping mechanism of other Mm -hmm. deeper underlying things. Yeah. Yeah. So, yeah. Yeah. um, uh, Fortunately, we had just received tax returns when I got fired. So I was able to take a month off and put myself in some therapy, group therapy sessions and. I went to work. I got a job. Lauren went back to work. I think that was actually really, really good for me because I had missed working a lot. And I do again. (laughs) Yeah. I just, I just want to say, and just acknowledge Trevor, like that you've, you've both been on such a long journey, you know, with all of this, um, you know, self-awareness building and then I can only imagine the pain of that recognition and, and, seeing how your child Jude was processing it like the weight of that recognition and and pain around just seeing your impact that way I it's a lot it's a lot to bear and when you're already ideating in different ways like I'm grateful that's something whether it's you know Lauren's support or friend's support or the the mix of things kind of held you in place you know, so that you didn't take any action on those things that, that, that you and I could have this conversation today. Cause oh God, you know, I can't even, I can't even imagine. So. We've had to learn a lot of things the hard way. Mm-hmm. It has been a long, long process. Yeah. So Trevor, tell me then at that point now, when you said you, you hadn't learned your lesson, I'm sure readers over years, audience members are probably thinking, when is it going to get better? Like, <laughs> when is it going to, how is it going to get better? Is it going to get better? Right? Like they seem so nice. Like, please let it get better. So, 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 you know, take us through the, the worst part of the repetition piece of the story for mm-hmm. you and how you turned whatever corner you turned. Or if you feel like you're still turning it, like talk to us about that. So the, right after I got fired, took a time off, um, and then I went right back to kitchens and like, which was a bad choice, but I had the experience and I needed a job and had to provide for the family. So I went and worked at the paddock club, which was fun. Um, Mm -hmm. but also very, very hard because shift drinks again. Mm -hmm. And like, I went straight back to a place that had a bunch of people who liked to drink. So Mm -hmm. it was hard. The staff 
learned that I don't drink and they did not pressure me. And that, that was something I always thought was going to be really hard. And like, I thought Mm -hmm. I was believing these things that like, Oh, my friends are going to try and pressure me to drink. I think that all comes from like dare in high school or elementary school Mm -hmm. or whatever social constructs I was taught in a long time before. Our religious <laughs> upbringing may have had something to do with it. But there was a lot of like mm. fear of what people will think of me. Uh, but no, I did it. I'm like, no, I don't drink. And I had like a root beer. Like, they would bring me like a root beer or whatever. Like they would still bring me uh, like a drink. And honestly, they just treated mm-hmm. me like the high schoolers. And I was okay with that. I don't mind Sprecher's root okay. beer. <laughs> 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 it, honestly, it's just nice to have a cold beverage at the end of the night after you just stood in front of a grill for six hours. (laughs) Mm -hmm. So like that was hard. And then it was really just a stressful summer because I was just coming out of ground zero or or my, my rock bottom. So I met some good friends. I was still like able to be myself and still accepted. So I learned that like, okay, drinking does not equal fun. Like Mm. I I had always associated like people Mm. who drink are fun. Like drinking is fun. Mm. Like I I, like really had to stop associating the two and like, I don't know, like, I don't know. I I probably learned that in high school. Um, (laughs) But uh, finally I decided I'm going to get out of the kitchen Mm. and on my own personal life, I, we played a lot of video games and like i grew up with electronics. We are, we were talking today, we are the age that was like the first generation to grow up with cell phones. Mm -hmm. And that's why our parents were so strict about the internet because nobody knew what happened on the internet back then in Mm -hmm. 97 or whatever. Like, I don't know. It's like, I still remember dial up. And like, so we were those kids that were like, can we go sit in a chat room? And they're like, no. (laughs) (laughs) So like nowadays, a lot of things we take for granted, like we were that generation that like we saw a lot of like the beginnings of the internet. Mm-hmm. We made a lot of friends there online playing games together. We built a community mm-hmm. online. And a lot of our friends also dealt with mental health stuff or feeling okay. isolated. I mean, if you're a person that sits home and plays video games a lot, you might have things in common with other people mm-hmm. that spend their time doing the same thing. Okay. But like for her, we found, we found other couples that were playing games. We, we started trying to find more communities. So we, fa- um, mm-hmm. you found girl gamers that mm-hmm. were not like, like we like had very set social constructs of what we thought this world was like. And then we just started trying to find more community and find more mm-hmm. people and slowly breaking apart all of our old ideologies from mm-hmm. when we were kids. And as I was working, I got out of the kitchen. I started selling cell phones. Like I was a gamer, whatever. I'm like, yeah, I can sell a cell phone. Everybody uses a cell phone. Because mm-hmm. I remember like teaching my mom how to use her cell phone every time we had to upgrade and like all that <laughs> stuff. So, I mean, like, mm-hmm. yeah, I was really good at helping old people fix their apps on their phone. <laughs> but like, mm-hmm. I really enjoyed helping people at that job. And I, also learned how to talk to people again because in my depression Mm. and isolation and staying hidden behind a kitchen door I had forgotten how to be professional and talk to people really well Mm. and to be articulate so Mm -hmm. like honestly selling cell phones really helped me learn to talk again wow and that was last year 
So okay. then now then COVID hit. So then COVID hit and okay. I was working on commission at the cell phone store and I'm like, mm. this does not work for our family. We gave it like a week or two of when COVID hit America, let's say that. Mm-hmm. <laughs> and then I took this job that I had interviewed for and just mm-hmm. wasn't going to take, but mm-hmm. now COVID hit. And I'm like, okay, we need this. It, that's why it was mm-hmm. put on my plate. Mm-hmm. And I took this job going back into a kitchen environment, but this time mm-hmm. in a grocery deli setting, mm-hmm. which I had a lot of still preconceived notions about what goes on in a deli in a grocery store. And okay. honestly, it's a what lot. What were those preconceived notions? Well, so I didn't realize how much they actually make in at least oh. the three delis that I like I am in charge mm-hmm. of. And I also didn't mm-hmm. understand, like, I really thought that like everything was going to be coming out of a bucket or everything okay. was going to just be pre-made. I just have to open it and set it down or like everything was going to be fried food. And like, mm-hmm. I don't want to serve processed food. Mm-hmm. So I had a lot of thoughts about it. And like, when I finally got there, like you think deli, you're like, Oh, just sliced meat and cheese. But you make salads just like a restaurant. You make entrees just like mm-hmm. a restaurant. You, we're mm-hmm. not actually serving in real time, but we are setting it out similarly. So mm-hmm. it was very similar skills, very familiar setting, but mm-hmm. like one tenth of the stress. Mm-hmm. Because in a deli, okay. when somebody comes up and says, Hey, do you have this? You say, No, we don't have that. I'm sorry. Right. Yeah. And it's not the shame of 86ing something. And nobody yells <laughs> at the server and nobody yells at anything. It's just, mm-hmm. Sorry, the store does not have that today. You don't have Mm. 10 tickets to cook for at the same time. And like, there's no opportunity for the staff to shame themselves about not having it Mm -hmm. in that situation either. So there is a lot less stress in the kitchen. And Mm -hmm. I've gotten a few cooks to come out of kitchens and into the deli. I've gotten like Mm -hmm. one or two. And when they get there Mm -hmm. and they start working and they're like, this is what we do. I'm like, yeah, (laughs) what's wrong? They're like, I'm like, it's okay. It's quiet. It's fine. Like they're like, they're the, the, the calm piece is unnerving to them because they're used Mm -hmm. to the hustle and bustle of a kitchen and they're in a kitchen, but it's not stressful. Yeah. It's same kind of physical environment, but a totally different meaning um, in terms of impact on one's well-being. I wonder if you can talk to me a little bit more about that, because I know you shared with me earlier in a different conversation the, the different kind of stress that you've experienced in, in your workplace and not because of what's happening in the kitchen, but because of the policy oh, of okay. the grocery store. I mean, and, and so, yeah, I COVID hit and masks were not mandated when COVID came to America. Mm-hmm. At your grocery store, N- it any, wasn't mandated. Anywhere. All right. when, when COVID first started hitting the news, masks yes. weren't mandated. So it was those okay. first couple of weeks before like the mm-hmm. big mandate came and it's like, okay, everyone okay. needs to wear masks. It was because when I took the job, it was still don't buy masks, leave them for the hospitals. That's right. what was going okay. on in America. That's right. So like we had been, we had some cloth masks and I was like the first one to wear one at the Verizon store. And then when I moved to this new job, I was one of like, two or three people wearing a mask in this grocery store. Mm. Then the mandate hits and 
Mark has his legal team take a look at the mandate and similar things happened in the state of Wisconsin. And all of a sudden he's like, yeah, no, we're not going to enforce mandate masks here for the staff mm-hmm. or the employees. Or I mean, for and, the and staff the or the too, customers. Right. right. So then which is a big deal. He's like, it's not my choice to make for them. I'm going to leave them. They can choose that for themselves. Mm-hmm. So, yeah, I, I signed up for something I did not agree to or really like. It was hard for and me, it, too. It became very apparent very quickly how set he was. Mm-hmm. And I was so new to that job and, and like too scared to really like stick true to my values because I was like a week mm-hmm. in and been, I would have been like, no, but it's mm-hmm. hard when you're talking to an owner of three stores like. Hey, I know you hired me because you need some help in delis and I know kitchens, but you run a grocery store and you're not making everyone wear masks. I don't know how to reason with that. It's hard to reason with that, I think. And, and the only thing is, it's like, it's time and love, I guess. It's, we have learned, like, um, you attract more flies with honey than vinegar. Mm-hmm. And like that saying is actually true. Um, so like I, yeah. I just worked there and I wore a mask and even some of my managers were like, why are you wearing a mask? And I'm like, mm. you guys don't get out much, do you? But <laughs> it, it became very quickly apparent that I realized that everyone who works in these stores also shops at those stores, mm-hmm. which kind of makes sense, but not to me because I shop to whatever. The pigs are actually more expensive for similar products than, than you mm-hmm. can find around town. So mm-hmm. like me mm-hmm. trying to save money for my family, I hit like two or three mm-hmm. stores, but anyway, mm-hmm. it came, became very apparent that all of these people only shop at the pig. Mm-hmm. And I'm like, you realize these three stores are like some of the few in this County that aren't doing masks. Like I'm not mm-hmm. the crazy one here for wearing a mask. Right. <laughs> Yeah. Um, so I went yeah. through that. Like I was, mm-hmm. I was like, uh, made fun of for wearing a mask in the beginning. Wow. And okay. like, I'm, I was also like the supervisor. I'm like, if anyone needs to be wearing a mask, it's me. Cause I'm bouncing between three of these stores. Mm-hmm. Mm-hmm. So I'm doing this for you guys. And I kept saying that every time I'm right. like, this mask isn't for me. Right. I'm pretty yeah. fairly healthy. My body has been at least nice to me I've abused it but it's been nice to me Mm -hmm. Mm -hmm. and that was like some of the hardest thing to deal with like going to work knowing that everyone thinks you're crazy for protecting your family and being safe and for me I've I'm not diagnosed with anything yet but I've been dealing with a lot of symptoms of what I suspect may be some sort of autoimmune condition Mm -hmm. or maybe some progression of that so I've been especially a little extra anxious about it being like, I don't know how my immune system would deal if I were to get Mm -hmm. COVID. So the fear of Mm -hmm. knowing that my husband is working in an environment where people are not protected or safe um, Mm -hmm. or nearly as protected and safe as he should be from bringing that home to me and our kids. And honestly, from a stressful, from a culinary standpoint and most other culinarians I talked to, like COVID was eye-opening to us remembering how bad the rest of the world is at proper hygiene. Mm-hmm. Like, mm-hmm. oh my goodness, I forgot we have to teach people to wash their hands. 
Mm-hmm. And like you, you see, and that that's part of that culture shock that I forgot about. Cause I was in Kohler and I was in some really nice mm-hmm. established places that were searching for culinarians that cared and wanted mm-hmm. to be there. And then mm-hmm. I started working in other places and I started seeing, I'm like, Oh, it's a culture shock when you have staff that like they can cook, but it's a different world. Mm-hmm. You have to explain things differently. You mean I, like the sanitation I, like, aspect? Honestly, like I've stopped using a lot of the French terms. Uh-huh. I, I've accommodated my vocabulary to help them better, mm-hmm. mainly because I know what I'm talking about. And, and I would just, mm-hmm. I just want it to be easy and accessible for them. Mm-hmm. So yeah, that was very tough going to work. Um, and it's still like that, right? It hasn't changed. Nothing's changed about it. We're still not mandating masks. Yeah. Actually, and our state they... mandate just got struck down. Well, yeah. And yeah, our state right. is yeah. striking down the, the mandate anyway, but the rest of the stores are keeping that mandate because of the CDC. But no, mm-hmm. our, our store is still not mandating masks on right. either side. And My staff wears like... masks, though. Like once, oh, that's once things actually started getting real, like... Fall, I would say. Fall. Yeah. Like I finally like just wore my mask for so long and never took it off that they realized that I'm serious Mm -hmm. and this is a real thing. Mm -hmm. And I guess after six months of a pandemic, then they can acknowledge it's real. I don't know. (laughs) Mm -hmm. So, yeah, like eventually more and more people did start wearing masks as the state released. This is a mask mandate. Mm-hmm. And like, and the, the strange thing is like the, the grocery stores, we provided masks if people wanted them for mm-hmm. the staff. And so it was very weird. Yeah. Well, I think that sort of desire to remain autonomous and not have people tell you what to do. I think that for some reason, you know, it, it goes toward, you know, our kind of American cultural independence. Right. And and all of that, but it also, when it comes time to care about the collective, we, we kind of come up with that friction between people around that. Like, yes. where does my independence end and my concern for the collective begin, yeah. if, if at all? So, yeah, this is interesting. And, and so I think we're going to, we might want to, if there's more you want to say about that, um, you know, feel free but I, there was something that came up in our earlier conversation that I wanted to bring up because while you've been working, you've also gone into this new place of like examining identity, right? And I, and I think in some ways it relates to you've done this work, right? This deeper work on things that have been experiences of trauma and you've done this deeper work around you know, the relationships you've had in your past that have informed how you view things now. And you decided as a couple to, you know, just post George Floyd to kind of, I think, demonstrate your own leadership to your children. And also, you know, I guess probably within the circles of your families around like the stand you take on what's happening in our country. And, And I think it's important because you kind of talked about your identity with me and, you know, this sort of, I don't know, examination of what it, what it is. And um, just for people who can't see you, you're both, you know, white Americans 
and Tasty. you, your last name is, <laughs> is cook. And I think when I was in, when I was in school teaching, I, I think I wondered whether if, whether your last name was like of German origin or something because of the way it was spelled. Cause it's K O C H, right. Is that right? Mm-hmm. Yeah. But so why don't you talk to me a little bit about that and how it intersected? Like, because I think that that piece is like a different layer of kind of grounding yourself in your own identity and being able to make choices about how you shape it and also how you shape your family, right? And how you how you help them to understand how to form relationships with people, right? So I think the very first step, and this is not an affiliate link, but I, I signed up for BetterHelp and got a therapist through a mobile device mm. during the pandemic. Okay. I hadn't had a real therapist this whole time. Um, And finally, when COVID hit, I was like, I'm going to get some help. (laughs) Um, Mm -hmm. And to me, actually, the um, the mobile version of these this this therapy system to me was a lot more approachable. You don't have to get in the car. You don't have to drive Mm -hmm. somewhere in your town and worry about Mm -hmm. who's going to see you at the therapist's office or you Mm -hmm. don't have to like it was so much more comfortable and easy to just do a video call with someone. Nice. Um, and the, like the way that app was set up was nice. You could text throughout the week and like you had communication mm. and they gave you a safety net or some. Mm. So that was a big help in, in just like moving the budget around to make sure that we can take care of ourselves first. Mm-hmm. Um, a thing we tell ourselves a lot is like secure your own mask first. It's the, mm-hmm. the thing they tell you in, in airplanes with kids. Mm-hmm. If, mm-hmm. if you don't have your oxygen mask on, you're not going to be able to put your kids on. Mm-hmm. So right. we, this past year, have started to devote time to ourselves and not feel guilty mm-hmm. about it well, or try to. Okay. <laughs> um, mm-hmm. So I think that was like one of the biggest steps in, in our transformative time of actually, yeah. or at least mine. Mm-hmm. And then you can... I don't know what actually was that change point for you. Uh, well, it would be almost exactly a year ago. I forget the exact date, but it was like April 7th or 8th or 9th or something that I actually got diagnosed with ADHD at mm. 27 years old. So wow, that's a long time. Yeah. And not only did I get diagnosed, but I checked all the boxes. Like my doctor diagnosed me within a half hour evaluation and was like, yep, I don't need to even add up the score on this thing. Cause it's very clear. Um, and mm-hmm. I had been living with all of these rampant unchecked symptoms of ADHD for my whole life. And that gave me probably the biggest identity exploration opportunity that I could possibly have asked for because it just, there was relief. There was grief. Mm -hmm. There was, Oh my gosh, I finally have an answer for all of these things. Mm -hmm. And it was really just because I stumbled on a TikTok video where a woman was like, Hey, here's what a lot of women experience with ADHD that you might not realize is a thing. And it's, Mm -hmm all of these just different little behaviors that don't really fit in with depression or anxiety specifically, or these other things, women are very commonly misdiagnosed with depression and anxiety rather than ADHD. And so it, I was able to look back over my life and see all of these things that had been missed. I did really well 
in school as a student. I got good grades. And that's usually kind of the flag. You know, if a kid can't sit still in class, can't pay attention, can't get their homework done, that would be kind of the indicator. And I flew under the radar. And so, but I was able to look back and see how these things had affected my relationships, how they'd affected my productivity. I often felt like I was just always trying so hard to get things done, reach goals, do things I wanted to do. And I just couldn't catch up. I couldn't ever accomplish Mm. things. I was all over the place. Um, Mm. So that was a huge, huge revelation for me. I finally had answers for basically why I was the way that I was Mm. and kind of had to grieve for my past self or the younger me that was just struggling Mm. so, so hard. And nobody saw it. Nobody knew. Um, I grew up often being told that I was too outspoken, too loud, too much, too lazy, irresponsible, scatterbrained, spaceball, all of those things. And I had learned to think that way about myself. That was my inner talk. That was my inner self-talk. And so to finally be able to say, to have something that's like, no, this is not your fault. This is Mm. not who you are. You're not lazy. You just actually have a brain that struggles with executive function. So that was huge. That was huge. And I broke down so many different aspects of my life, just reflecting on just getting that diagnosis. And then actually a couple months after that, I started adapting. I actually did get on medication for that, that I no longer take either, but starting to look into different ways to adapt and learn how to live with ADHD. And Trevor at first kind of was like, I mean, he wasn't not supportive, but he just kind of wasn't super involved or into the process of figuring it out, which we then kind of realized that. It's because I have it too. (laughs) I realize that's where you're going with that. I'm um, sorry if you didn't want to. <laughs> no, it's fine. Um, it's because I have it too. Um, he got diagnosed in July. It took me a while to figure it out. And I think that's why it took me a while to get on board with you. I think like deep down I knew. There's a little denial going on. And maybe. I just was denying it for like a month of like, yeah, I don't want to accept this. And then well, finally. How could, how could you I, add one more thing? Well, right? it's, it's, it's whatever. Add one Throw more it on the pile. But so I think yeah. what happened was his lack of acceptance or seeing that in himself. Cause I showed him, I was like, here's all the quizzes that you can take online to see if you should go get evaluated. Mm-hmm. You know, here's mm-hmm. some YouTube videos about what it is. And we both definitely, I mean, different ways, different forms, but we definitely mm-hmm. both exhibited <laughs> most, if not all of the common symptoms. And so I think his lack of acceptance in that self in himself kind of led to a little bit of me feeling like it wasn't being accepted in me. And I eventually saw a really good YouTube video um, made by a woman named Jessica McCabe. She has a YouTube channel called How to ADHD. And she did a TED Talk that was just, she gave this speech and she was the one to say, you are not lazy. You are not Mm -hmm. stupid. You are not Mm -hmm. these things. And I was sobbing. I was like, and I showed him this video. I was like, I have not heard these words from anybody. Like, I need Mm -hmm. that. And he was like, oh, you need that from me. And it all clicked into place and he got it and he was with me and we're like, okay, cool. We're going to tackle this and figure it out together. And it just kind of unlocked some tension. And then he was like, oh wait, but also that's me too. (laughs) Um, And that just, again, unearthed all this 
remembering childhood trauma. So then we started digging more and more digging. And this was, of course, all going on at the same time as like the George Floyd and all the protests Mm -hmm. and all of the unrest over the summer. And so we were kind of having our own little identity crisis of, wait, who are we? And what do we actually have going on with ourselves? And where did all this come from? And how did our families or people that raised us like not Mm -hmm. know? Like, how did we not see this? Mm -hmm. And then it was kind of, we had started kind of picking apart our, you know, religious upbringing and other belief systems within the last couple of years. So I think we were kind of more primed to just dig deeper. And so then when all the protests and everything started, it was that same kind of, I see so many parallels between our own mental health journey and unearthing a lot of the subconscious or limiting beliefs and things that we were taught. And then also those that apply to being white people in this country and all of the things that we were taught or that we believed that we were not aware of and didn't see how they were problematic for us or for other people. So Mm -hmm. just that kind of deeper layer of like, what were we taught about this? What were we taught to believe Mm -hmm. about ourselves Mm -hmm. and about our world? And, you know, we saw so many veils kind of being pulled away (laughs) in ourselves. Mm -hmm. And like, obviously that must apply to our worldview as well. So it would, I mean, I will say that I regret that it took me until last summer to get serious about Mm -hmm. examining my own junk, you know, as a white person Mm -hmm. that was raised in a very conservative and kind of a bubble. I was definitely raised in a white people bubble. Mm -hmm. And so it just was like, it all got ripped off. It was like, Oh, Mm -hmm. like our eyes were just kind of open to all of this stuff. And we just kind of dove right in. Yeah. And by diving right in, Trevor, you said you started, did you start or did somebody invite you into um, a book club? So I don't really. I started No, Yeah. Did you start it? I'm like, I'm not really sure who actually started it. I think it was you, but like, uh, I would like to add something about the George Floyd publicly happening and seeing the rest of the world Mm -hmm. get angry. Mm -hmm. Something snapped in me last summer that made me start caring again. Mm. and it had something to do with i mean digging into myself but it was it was something Mm. of seeing the rest of the world angry and fed up with this stuff Mm -hmm. that like i finally snapped and that really was a big turning point where i'm like okay let's do better we can do Mm -hmm. better i want to do better and Mm -hmm. and then it was finally um and we we reached this point where we the backgrounds that we came from, we saw people that we loved not caring about COVID, not taking precautions, Mm -hmm. not caring about this, the George Floyd thing and not caring about what was going on with other people in the world that weren't like them or didn't think or believe Mm -hmm. the same way as them. And we just, we'd already, I think, been tired, but this was just kind of the breaking point for us Mm -hmm. where we were like, we can't, stay tied to that anymore. We can't be those people that we were raised to be anymore. It just doesn't Mm -hmm. feel right. It doesn't, Mm -hmm. that's Mm -hmm. not it. That ain't it. That's not showing up fully in the world for ourselves and other people. And yeah, we just were like, we can't pretend anymore. We can't stay quiet. We can't try to stay hush hush. So we don't make our families mad. You know, it was just, it's not worth it anymore to even try to like keep appearances kind of thing. Mm. And yeah, 
we just so kind of got noisy. <laughs> book club. Yeah, sorry. Um, so Lauren and I were still within our gaming community, but slowly actually starting to play video games less because that was what reali- we realized that was one of our coping mechanisms a lot. Mm. And even though it sounds great to be a gamer couple, it's not really that awesome as the couple because you really are just checking out next to each other. Sure. So we, we have that at home with our cell phones sometimes. Yeah. No, I get yeah. it. We and, still and have that with ourselves you, a lot. You it's need still that a real time. struggle. Like, <laughs> it's just, we, so we had our community still and we had just put it, I think you put it out there. It was like, Hey, I want to do something. Do you guys want to start a book club? Like there was some semi-woke people in that group and she's like, put it out there. And a couple of the, a couple of the guys were like, yeah, I want to do something. And and we got a group of us. There was maybe like eight at the beginning. Yeah. And it, it dwindled down to like four of us at the end. But we mm. went through the book. Um, Me and White Supremacy by Layla Saad. And we worked through it. And it took us a long time. I mean, we just finished it a couple of weeks ago. Yeah, it almost took us a year. Just because- We took weeks off. We, we missed stuff. But we all worked through that book to educate ourselves as mostly white people in the group. Um, one of the guys in the group is Guatemalan. And so he had some really interesting. Yeah, that was actually nice. Too. We had, we had a person of color inside of the group, but he mm-hmm. was coming from a um, Central American country where as he was growing up, his main goal was to try to be white. Mm. And he is also sure. white passing too. Oh, so he was kind yeah. of coming at it from both so perspectives. He had some very insightful things and would blow our mind a lot. <laughs> yeah. So that was interesting. Yeah, that would be an interesting person to have in your group. That white presenting lived experience is, is just, it can be really challenging for people. So you were, you were very fortunate to have that. Yeah. Wow. And, and I, you know, I just want to say like, for me that, that you shared that with me, you know, cause Trevor and I just started talking again this week and I was like, wow, it's, it's really important that people hear and understand like this journey that you've been on this journey of healing. Cause it's, it's been healing, you know, your emotional self, your well being, with, you know, the, the chemical dependency, but then, you know, this healing around being psychologically safe within yourself um, with the ADHD and then reconstructing identity, looking at race and looking at um, concepts of white supremacy. And I've sort of said for myself personally, I think that word is useful you know, to, to the point of being able to identify the things that contribute to the otherness and the things that contribute to the level of privilege. And then at a certain point, um, maybe it isn't so great because embedded within it is still the concept that one race could be supreme, you know, whether it's white supremacy or a different race substituted in. And it, you know, what I, what I find really hopeful is that you took the time to do it and that you involved other people and that you got the education that you needed or are getting that education and that you recognize, you know, we're all still evolving. And there's a, there's a book called um, My Grandmother's Hands that's a really important book, I think, in this time, which talks about people's experience of trauma, right, racialized trauma. And I think when you have experienced your own form of trauma, 
you are able to see and, and hear other people's stories of racialized trauma in a very different way because there's sort of a baseline of compassion, right? Because you, you're not really seeing that person telling that story as different from yourself or as different from your experience. And, and granted, it will be a different experience because, you know, there are just some basic privileges that come with certain things, even for myself, you know, Asians have, have oftentimes been pegged to be model minorities, you know, and so there's sometimes some bias to assume that, well, they're smart, well, they can do certain things. Um, so, and I just think that where you've come is just such a great representation of hope, right? That you took the, that you bothered to take that on, that you held yourselves accountable, that you you recognize it as a place of leadership for yourself. And, and I am grateful that you carry that knowledge into kitchens, right? And I would say kitchens sometimes are better places, right? They're, they're worse places in that people don't get the benefits that they need in most of them. They're worse places in that, you know, the compensation isn't what it necessarily needs to be. And, you know, that health isn't taken care of in the same way. Um, and that the stresses and the pressures are what they are, but they're better in that because you come together oftentimes around this passion for food and this sense of having to be a team that sometimes in some kitchens, it's easier to sort of appreciate and celebrate each other's diversity and differences and just recognize you're part of the same family and you just accept it. And I think, you know, if, if we can take anything out of the culinary arena that I think is so beautiful. It's really that, you know, and, and I just, I'm impressed with the work that you've done. I know it's not complete and I think it's totally natural to kind of ebb and flow in what you're learning. Even for myself as a person of color, I pick up the book and I put it down because I'm, I'm balancing like what I'm coming up against in the, the work I've chosen to do to support people of color in leadership positions in different places. And then just, you know, showing up into spaces where I might be the only person of color and where other people are coming into their own around how they're dealing with being confronted with some of the things they say, some of the biases they have and not necessarily being okay with it. And, and I think one of the things you talked about earlier was really kind of claiming that space to keep yourself safe. And it, it cuts across all places, you know, all races and places that, you know, there is that ownership of, of having to recognize where your boundary has to be for this moment, like what you're capable of digesting and absorbing and learning and then practicing. And I just wonder if you had anything more to say about those kinds of things, you know, just to have the patience and compassion for oneself. The first thing that comes to mind for me is that in that whole process, I would say last summer, especially we, I think maybe went a little too hard in unpacking Mm. a lot of these things Mm -hmm. almost too quickly and not giving them time to really soak in and let ourselves kind of integrate one thing Mm -hmm. at a time. And we're dealing with, we're in a pandemic. We're dealing with becoming newly aware of all of these kind of a lot of really subconscious culturally ingrained Mm -hmm. beliefs or stereotypes that we kind of had 
unknowingly bought into that we're like, oh, I didn't ask for this to be here, but I still am responsible for dealing with it anyway. Mm-hmm. And our own mental health stuff and trauma and just so much stuff that yeah. I personally almost went, got to a place where I became more unwell because it was mm. like almost like reactivating stuff in myself and not giving myself the time and the safety to really just sit with things as I needed to and take whatever mm-hmm. pace I needed to, because I felt like there was a lot of pressure to get it right now, get it uh, figured out yeah. now, fix it now. Mm-hmm. You've been walking your whole life, completely unaware of all of this junk. You're almost 30 years mm-hmm. old. You've got kids. You've got to mm-hmm. figure it out now before you like do mm-hmm. more damage. <laughs> right. And I put so much pressure on myself to figure it out. And I think I just honestly, I got to a point later in the fall where I was having really severe panic attacks oh, and yeah. was like, my body needs to catch up to what's going mm-hmm. on. And I need to just slow down and take care of myself. It doesn't mean that I don't care. It doesn't mean I'm not learning. Mm-hmm. It doesn't mean I'm not putting in effort, but I have to slow it down because I just don't have the capacity to keep up with all of these different, you know, peeling back all of these different layers within myself at one time. Yeah. And I think that's a really important recognition, you know, for the, for the people of color who are listening out there, that everyone is always unpacking something, you know, and we meet people in these conversations. And when we do that, you know, there's, there's an important piece of grace. Like I've, I've had these conversations with people professionally around, um, white gatekeeping in organizations where the gatekeepers with the funds or with the decision-making authority, you know, they've, they've got control and they sometimes don't realize what that means for people who are non-white. And I've always said to people, look, you know, in my lifetime, I have been helped most significantly in my careers, whether it be in the practice of law or in the culinary world by men who were white because they open the doors. And when we kind of speak in these ways that kind of show us this binary world, right? Like, yes, you're with us or no, you're not. Or we we don't give the space for evolving, for learning at a pace which is suitable to what our emotional well-being and our psychological well-being can handle, right? Because you're managing so many different things. And so that for me, this concept of a gracious reckoning where we can, you know, evolve and learn together um, and and be held accountable, right? Held accountable with the utmost integrity and still be gracious to allow for that digestion, that metabolism, that integration that can heal, right? Because you can't heal by forcing people to take their meds or, you know, like to read X number of books. It's not going to work that way. It's going to work from the human connection, that, that recognition and that support. You know, like when, when Trevor and I spoke, I said, how can I support you? And that's got to be a, a weird question to hear. Like your friends are going to ask you that. And like, I want to ask you that because I care about you. Like I, I just made a choice when I went into teaching. I'm like, I'm going to care about every single person who walks through that door because there's so much value in each person and they are my family when they come through that door and I am loyal. So it doesn't matter if you called me 50 years from now, God willing, I'm still alive, right? It's still the same. We're going to have the same conversation. We pick up exactly in the same place. I still remember you. I still see you. 
And so I feel like it's really important to say, I still see you and I'm so grateful that you're doing this work at whatever pace you can do it. Because I also still believe that you're leading. And I believe that about the blog that you're creating and inventing. And tell us the name of the food blog that you're doing, that you're starting. Like yes. it's a concept still. Oh, I'm still scared to say it. Oh my gosh. No, we um, we just chose our name the other day. We're in the very beginning stages. We're going to be the holistic, the holistic heretics. The holistic heretics. And that is meant with the greatest spirit of happiness and joy and yes. not in the terms of offending people yes. who are religious. Because I, I would say from like the standpoint of spirituality, I think both of you really fundamentally exude care and concern for other people all the time. I think, you know, from the first time I met you, Lauren, I knew that about you. Everything you just said was like, I have to say it, it was like a breath of fresh air and relief. And I'm very grateful for that really nice. Yeah. The name really kind of came from a place of we've been on this weird journey, especially in the last year of really kind of rebelling against so many of the systems that we were brought up in and told not to question. This is how things are. Mm -hmm. This is the rules. This is what you're supposed to do. This is the way things Mm -hmm. are going to be. And if you Mm -hmm. don't want to fit into the box, if you don't want to follow the rules, you're out. You know, you're not accepted. You don't belong. You're flawed. You're misled. You're demonized. Other. You're mm-hmm. other. And and yeah. we have found that, I mean, it started for us with our own religious experiences, but also, again, like that just went into the politics and anti-racism work and social constructs. Like I have just been ripping apart all of the diet culture, beauty standards, Mm. patriarchy, capitalism, like all of these things that were just like, I don't want to participate in that anymore. Or if I have to participate Mm -hmm. in it because I exist in this world and in this society, I want to participate it within, um, with a certain awareness and with a certain my own, my, on my own terms in the way that I want to do it in the way that works for me not because that's the way that everybody else told me it should be. And so I know that the word heretics does have that kind of religious connotation to it, but we kind of really were thinking about the way that can more have broader implications of kind of rebelling against all of these different systems that people are honestly just imprisoned in or enslaved Mm -hmm. to Mm -hmm. and that there can be better way. There's a better way. Mm -hmm. And Mm -hmm. it doesn't have to be, that way you can be rebellious you can be weird you can break the rules you can be obnoxious and you can still be like doing it right because it's what's right for you right and it doesn't matter what anybody else says or thinks about it yeah nice nice and the people can follow you on instagram currently um under a different name right oh yeah i mean right now i'm just kind of flooding the uh flooding the instagram with just photos of beginnings of the garden because that's what I'm doing right yeah. now and that's what I'm into. I yeah. don't have the blog set up and I haven't I've gathered my photography equipment, but I really haven't played with it enough. <laughs> but like mm-hmm. I really I'm just sitting and trying to practice having a hobby again. Mm, that's huge. It's I'm trying to practice having a hobby again because I lost it and like cooking is, is fun. And like, I want to cook for pleasure, but it's also my job and, and it's going to be my mm-hmm. job. But like, I have found that I really enjoy gardening and it's mm-hmm. been a kind of funny 
but like I'll literally just sit and stare at the seedlings. He does. (laughs) (laughs) I've done that. I I I totally understand that. I don't know if I think I can watch them grow or what. I don't know, but um, (laughs) I just really love plants right now. So I've been taking Uh lots of pictures of what I like. And I've realized like a long time ago that like, I think I wanted to be a photographer or a food blogger when I was Mm -hmm. younger, but like was told Uh like, this was also, we were in the beginning of the internet. So like blogging's not a real job. You can't do that. Right. Or like, you can't go make a living off of taking photos. (laughs) So like, I never allowed myself to pursue a lot of things. Mm-hmm. So like, I sure. like, and I was good at math and science. So like I've started to draw this year for the first time since I was like mm-hmm. 10. Oh, wow. That's beautiful. There's a book I want to recommend to you. Okay. It's called the, the creativity cure. And in the pandemic, I found myself kind of w- wondering, you know, what was uh, just uh, not existential wondering, I guess. And I found this book to be helpful in managing some of the things, you know, like that, that isolation piece. I'm highly extroverting. I'm sure you've got gathered that from interactions <laughs> and, you know, that isolation in the pandemic was so different. And I'm, I'm with a partner who's highly introverting. And what happened in the pandemic for me was like this opening into this like, um, creative aspect. And like you, I started drawing again and I hadn't been drawing because because I was told you, you are going to starve if you're an artist. So somebody who loves food, right? My gosh, like I'm, I'm not going to starve. I will never be an artist, (laughs) even if like, so it was always like, okay, you're just going to do that. Like on the side when you have time, but through the most stressful moments of my life, I always came back to doing something with drawing or painting or something. And so in the pandemic, with the level of stress that everybody was feeling for different reasons, that became like exercises and exercises in imperfection. And there was something so liberating in setting your intention on creating something with the, with the knowledge, the full knowledge that it would be imperfect and that you could be happy even in that imperfection. It was, it was so great. Um, it was liberating. And that imperfection piece didn't quite come out of that book. Um, I don't know if I made that up in my mind, um, but it it gave me the courage to join this Artist Connect group, which has been kind of like this beautiful group of women artists locally, some of whom are, you know, high, like they're very professional. Um, and I'm the one who didn't go to school for anything, but, you know, they, like, it's okay. It's okay. And that idea of being imperfect with oneself and still loving it anyway it's huge. It's a huge thing. That's kind of what I want to do with our blog. Mm-hmm. I mean, perfectionism has been a huge, huge thing for us to unpack and probably one of the more recent ones, really. Perfectionism being kind of a huge leader to burnout mm-hmm. because you either have to do the thing and do it all or nothing and just go way too hard on it or you get totally frozen and can't do anything at all because... Why try if you if it can't be perfect? That's something that both of us have struggled right. with a lot. Or perfectionism yeah. in dieting. I mean, I, I talk to some of my staff mm. now um, who struggle with some dieting habits or whatever. And, they, and I've been talking to them about like, we don't have to do these diets to a T to mm-hmm. be doing something better for ourselves. Right. Yeah. And well, that's huge. It still counts. Like you're still working mm-hmm. on yourself 
even if yeah. you had a piece of chocolate today that you weren't supposed to, you probably still ate a bunch yeah. of vegetables if you're trying to do a diet or whatever. Like mm-hmm. we don't have to get it all perfect for it to count. Yeah. And I think, right. so I guess we didn't talk a lot about my physical health stuff that I've been dealing with this last year. I've been struggling to find doctors that will take me seriously. And, mm. you know, I like I've got hormone stuff, inflammation, mm. nervous system stuff, digestive mm-hmm. things, just like a whole, you can tell my body is like dysregulated and imbalanced and mm-hmm. my liver needs help and, you know, all these things. Mm-hmm. And so it's really kind of taken me down the path of holistic wellness and learning about the gut brain connection, the mind body connection, yeah. and how just important all of these different aspects are. And I fully believe in that. Mm-hmm. But what's hard is when you go get onto the internet and are looking at blogs about this, it's, it's hard because if you're talking about holistic wellness, if you're talking about how all of these different aspects of our body systems and our wellness need to be addressed, it's so easy to fall into that perfectionism trap. Like mm-hmm. you really want to be at optimal wellness or optimal health, or you really want to heal yourself. You have to like address all of these different aspects. You have to handle all these things. And I think there's definitely some truth to that, but needing to recognize that you don't have to tackle it all at once. And honestly, if you try to, my, I can say from personal experience, it is not very likely to go well. I mean, I believe that in pushing myself way too hard to try to address every problem area at once, I made myself Mm. more sick. Mm. And so I find it a lot. I do find really helpful advice about the specific situation that I've been going through with my health on blogs, on the internet, Mm -hmm. but I see so much pervasive perfectionism in that. So much Mm -hmm. like, Oh, you want to detox? You got to get rid of all this stuff in your house. You got to deal with your toothpaste and your water and your pans and your this and your that. And you have to go get rid of all of it, get rid of all of it, replace it all, fix it all. And it's like, yes, but some of us only have the capacity for so much at one time. And then there's all of that for those of us that still don't have totally healed stuff. And we still Mm -hmm. deal with negative self-talk and, you know, Mm -hmm. procrastination and ADHD tendencies and (laughs) getting distracted and forgetful. It's not all of us have the capacity to just do that. I think, I mean, I'm think it's amazing if anybody is able to have a big health wake up and be like, okay, I'm going to do a 180. I'm going to fix it all. And I'm going to, if somebody is able to do that, cool. That's great. But if you can't, it doesn't mean that it's not worth trying or that you're still not doing something for yourself. I mean, the most impactful thing I did this year was make one promise to myself to do 10 minutes of yoga every day for a month. Mm, That was it. I had tried to do like, 30 day programs and like intensive Mm -hmm. exercise stuff. And just none of that. I couldn't maintain it. I was able to show up Mm -hmm. on my mat for 10 minutes a day. I didn't Mm -hmm. have to do specific moves. If I could just sit there and Mm -hmm. breathe and couldn't do anything else, that was fine. That's Mm -hmm. the only way that I've ever moved forward. I did more for myself in that month than I ever have in the whole rest of my life. And so that's something Um, that I really want to encourage with our blog. I want it to be really easy, mm -hmm. little shifts, little changes. Mm-hmm. If it's just that you're adding one extra thing into this recipe because that's you know a nutritive herb and you're gonna get some extra calcium that way, mm-hmm. sweet. If that's all that anybody gets yeah. from us, awesome. Mm-hmm. If it's just you know just really small simple things and all of it matters and all of it counts and 
If that's mm-hmm. all you can do right now, pat yourself on the back. You're doing something good for yourself. That's right. it. That's great. Um, that's great. I think we need it's more a, of that in the world. Great way. Yeah. A great way to invite people. That's good. Well, I have enjoyed catching up with both of you. I don't know if there's anything else you want to say, um, Trevor, you know, before we kind of close up and, and just, um, you know, acknowledge like how much you've shared that hopefully will land with people in ways where if they see themselves in any part of that journey, right, you've got, you've had multiple journeys in different ways, but that they can realize that there are places where you can call out for help and, you know, that there are people out there to be of support and that, you know, there are, there are ways out of the darkness. I think that's huge. And, and that not just get out of the darkness, but, you know, find, find some pockets of happiness and find some pockets of creativity. You know, if it's, if it's just watching a seedling, grow and not grow all at the same time in front of your face like that's amazing that's beautiful and I and I think you know gosh I just hope people who are out there you know showing up as line cooks who are showing up in the garbage station who are you know feeling lost in the pandemic feeling isolated that they that they hear something in this and that they work at getting the help that they need because I do think our our culinary industry is in crisis I think they the, the workers in it are often unseen um, in ways that we as a society ought to be really honoring and reflecting back that we value them, Wh- whether we're calling them essential workers or we're just saying, hey, you're human and you deserve care for your whole being. So so thank you for everything that you've shared. If there's anything else you want to share right now, we'll do that and then I'll just sort of sign us off. Um. The one like tidbit I would like to let people know, and it's something that like it it leads to that depression and anxiety. It's that lack of control that mm. scares us, and that it, it puts you into that hole. Like I can't control this. I'm just falling into this pit, and and nothing mm-hmm. nothing will help me. And like I think people need to know, like you have more control of your life than you think you do. Right. You got to start asking, what can I control? Mm-hmm. Stop saying, I can't control this. Mm. I think that's really important. That is super solid advice and a great inquiry. I'm blown away by you two, um, by your strength, by your perseverance, and by your love for each other. I'm excited to see your children grow up, whether it's by Instagram or sometime in person. I know we're, we're planning to take a road trip back to Wisconsin, so I'll try and get my my boy who's not so much older than your kids out to maybe the above and beyond museum if it's safe <laughs> maybe it'll just be outside <laughs> but i really want to thank either you either one is good state parks yeah state parks yeah that would be great and thanks again uh really what you're doing the the sort of self-exploration and examination the grounding of yourself in your your reconstructed identities getting deep into the land, into the growth of plants and creating this blog that I understand will be really about a healing journey through food and herbs, that that all of that is exactly representative of the things we want to talk about on Food Love, the space between terroir and the Tao of food. 
Thank you, Trevor and Lauren Cook. Thank you. Thank you.